Good evening. Welcome. Uh, so my name's David Hampton, uh, and I'm the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. So I'm delighted to welcome all of you, uh, colleagues, guests, distinguished speakers, panelists, to this very exciting conference entitled Texts, Knowledge, and Practice, The Meaning of Scholarship in Muslim Africa. My special thanks goes to um, uh, Professor Usman Khan, uh, who conceived and organized this important gathering of scholars, and also to the staff of the Al-Walid program and the HDS Office for Academic Affairs, who assisted Professor Khan in bringing all this together and bringing you all here. Furthermore, we're grateful to the many sponsors at Harvard, and I know uh, Professor Khan will mention them in more detail later in his remarks for their financial support to bring together this pioneering conference. It is amazing what seed money can do, says Adin. Um, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal partnered with Harvard University precisely to further studies in Islam that didn't focus solely on the Middle East, but that particularly would help spur interest in other fields and areas, such as studies in Islam and education or scholarship on sub-Saharan Africa. This gift also yielded a professorship and a chair for the Divinity School, even better, uh, held with great distinction uh, by Professor Khan. The conference poster announces, quote, this conference offers a venue for to rethink how such an evolution, that is of interest in Islamic studies in sub-Saharan Africa, occurred. It will be the first of two meetings intended to bring together specialists from Western academia and the Islamic world. Drawn from multiple uh, disciplines um, in the social sciences and humanities, the conference's 24 panelists will explore the ways in which Islamic scholarship has integrated Africa into the Islamic world and vice versa. It's my hope that publications, public discourse, and future scholarly endeavors will be influenced and partly guided by the discussions that will take place here over the next several days. So welcome everyone. We're really delighted to have you here with us at Harvard. It's now my pleasure to introduce my uh, colleague and friend, Professor uh, William Graham. Professor Graham is a Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor, the Murray Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies, and a former dean, um, I call them survivors, um, of the Divinity School. Uh, it's a very elite group. Uh, he currently serves as the director of the Prince Abulid bin Talal Islamic Studies program here at Harvard. As you know, Bill, in his own right, is a very highly regarded scholar in Islamic studies. His scholarship is focused on early Islamic religious history and textual traditions and on topics in the global history of religion. He's a recipient of many rewards, fellowships, and prizes for his work. Uh, in 2000, uh, he received the Quinquennial Award for Excellence in Research in Islamic History and Culture. His book, Divine Word and Prophetic Word in Early Islam, was awarded the American Council of Learned Societies History of Religions Prize. And he's also the author of Beyond the Written Word, Oral Aspects of Scripture in the History of Religion and Islamic and Comparative Religious Studies. So it's now my pleasure to hand the microphone over to uh, Bill who will introduce our distinguished keynote speaker for this evening, Professor Usman Khan. So please enjoy the conference, feel at home here. We are very delighted to have you. Thanks for coming, Bill. Thanks very much, David. Well, it's a pleasure and honor for me to uh, add to Dean Hempton's words of welcome 
uh, from the Divinity School, which has so generously provided a lot of the financial support for, as well as the venue for the conference. Um, I want to add to that uh, the welcome on behalf of the co-sponsoring Awalid bin Talal Islamic Studies program here, uh, which is a program under the auspices of the Central University Administration, one that seeks to be helpful to scholars, departments, and faculties of the university working in Islamic studies in all periods and globally. The program functions primarily as a point of contact for both faculty and students interested in Islamic studies. Uh, it's now 10 years old, going on 11. Uh, and it has been involved in this period of time in actively organizing or collaborating in presenting lectures, panels, workshops, and conferences such as the present one in Islamic studies. We have currently three Al-Walid bin Talal professors in Islamic studies, two in my home faculty in arts and sciences, and one whom I'm about to introduce uh, in my second faculty here at Harvard in divinity. Um, Two further professorships funded by the Al-Walid Endowment are yet to be filled, so we look to have quite an excellent complement of Islamic Studies people in addition uh, to the positions that already existed before this gift in 2005. Um, <clears throat> tonight I'm especially pleased to be present as this particular conference begins, not least because I consider it to be in some ways a conference that is in the legacy of the late John Hunwick of Northwestern University, whom I uh, came to know many years ago, and whose work on Timbuktu in particular has always seemed to me to have been a beacon uh, calling for, the subsequent, for subsequent growing interest in the Muslim intellectual history of Sub-Saharan Africa, something that I think the, uh, the distinguished group of people gathered uh, for this conference indicates is really coming to fruition now. I'm also pleased to be here to introduce uh, my Harvard colleague, the Al-Walid bin Talal Professor of Islamic Religion and Society in the Divinity School, Usman Khan, whom I'm proud to say was the last professorial appointment of my 10-year time as dean here. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have him as a colleague since 2012. He's a remarkable scholar, uh, as I think most people in this room already know, whose work has been groundbreaking in precisely the subject area that this conference attacks, namely Islamic and especially Arabic Islamic scholarship in Muslim Africa. It's thus more, I think, than a cliche to say that those of you gather for this conference, for you, he needs little or no introduction, but of course I'm gonna do so anyway, because there are a few of you who are not here for the conference, but have simply probably come in to see what's going on. Uh, Usman, uh, completed the majority of his university studies in Paris, where he earned two AB degrees in Arabic and master's degrees in both political science and translation and documentation. Before then, taking, on, taking his PhD from the Institut des Etudes Politiques de Paris, and after the, his PhD studies, these PhD studies there in 1993, he taught for nine years back in West Africa, in Senegal at the Université de Saint-Louis before becoming then a tenured associate professor at Columbia in 2002, where he worked until taking up the Al-Walid professorship here in 2012. During his time at Columbia, he was also a postdoctoral fellow at Yale, as well as a fellow uh, at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin, a visiting professor at the University of Kansas, and a visiting research fellow at SOAS. So Osman is one of these international scholars who gets around and who is known, I think, on a variety of fronts for his work because of his ability to network and make contact with scholars in different fields. His work on the intellectual history of Islam in Africa has been among his most significant contributions to Islamic studies. 
He made his mark in this area first in his 1997 catalog of books, by, that books by leading Senegalese mystics and scholars. Uh, and then in his remarkable short work, which I, the first book of his that I read, Les Intellectuels Non Orophones of 1993, uh, and then after that in his chapters in John Hunwick's Encyclopedic Arabic Literature on Africa, and most recently in his newly published 2016 book, uh, Beyond Timbuktu, an intellectual history of Muslim West Africa, where he carries his work on the non-Europhone non, uh, intellectuals to much wider fields, uh, as those of you that have read this work know. A second area of his work has been his history of Muslim religious groups in West Africa, has been the history of Muslim religious groups in West Africa from the 18th century to the present. Here, even during his Parisian studies, he focused on the transnational networks of Sufi communities in West Africa. And as an aside, I might say, of course, communities to which he is closely related uh, through his uh, family history, uh, being the grandson of the most famous West African spiritual reformer of the entire 20th century, uh, Ibrahim Nias. His important book on the transformation of Islamic identities in Nigeria in the post-colonial period uh, in that book, Muslim Modernity in Postcolonial Nigeria, 2003, was an outgrowth of his earlier Paris doctoral dissertation. Finally, a third area of his work has been on Muslim globalization. Here, many of you will already know his book, The Homeland is the Arena, uh, from 2012, his uh, fascinating study of Senegalese community, Muslim communities uh, in New York and their connections back to Senegal. Um, this book is likely, so I understand, to be the first of several that he wants to do on transnational minority communities in different uh, host countries. We very much need his sophisticated analyses of issues facing African Muslim immigrants in non-Muslim societies abroad, especially, I think, how they negotiate their homeland connections and allegiances alongside their new social and religious context in the new countries they go to. I could go on a good bit longer about Usman's remarkable work, but I think all of us would much prefer, I thought I would, to hear him rather than me. So let me subside and ask him to begin the work of this conference of yours by discussing history, movement, and the spread of Islamic scholarship in Muslim Africa. Usman, please. Uh, Thank you very much, Dean Hampton, for your welcome address, and thank you, Professor Graham, for your very generous introduction. Now, I would, I would like to introduce to you the co-convener of this conference, Matthew Steele, uh, the first and for now the only PhD candidate in the Islam in Africa track in Harvard's Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization. Uh, since Matthew joined our PhD program, he has devoted considerable time and energy to raising the profile of African Islamic studies on campus. In addition to playing a critical role in the intellectual leadership and planning of uh, this conference, <coughs> Matthew <coughs> has helped to coordinate the Islam in Africa speaker series co-sponsored by the Center for African Studies, the Al-Walid Program in Harvard Divinity School, which brought on campus uh, many prominent scholars uh, in the last year and a half. Since the beginning of the year, 
Matthew has also been running a graduate student workshop on Islamicate Africa in which other Harvard PhD students in Islamic studies have been actively involved. Please stand up, Matthew. Because graduate funding has been dropping in the last few years, unfortunately, we have not been able to recruit any other students since Matthew joined the Islam in Africa track at NELC. I seize the opportunity to make a plea to the doctoral admission committee to give a chance to Africanists applying to our program in the coming years. They might not rank at the top of the pool of applicants because unlike Matthew, many are not graduates of top American schools, but there is no doubt in my mind that some of them would be a strong addition to our program. Let me now acknowledge our many sponsors, starting with HDS. Matthew Steele and I began planning this conference in the spring of 2016 with a generous financial commitment and unflinching logistical support from the office of the Dean of Harvard Divinity School. I would like to mention in particular the Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs, Karin grunler Whitaker. Administrator Matthew Turner, Faculty Assistant Hirsch Blemur, Jennifer, and the Office of Communications, Communications at HDS who have all worked tirelessly to help us plan this conference. Alongside HDS, I would also like to thank for their generous financial contributions, the Hutchins Centers for African and African American Studies, the Center for African Studies, and the Department of African and African American Studies, as well as the Al-Walid Program in Islamic Studies, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. As you can see, all centers, departments, and programs concerned with Africa and Islam uh, at Harvard have enthusiastically sponsored this conference. That there are eight institutional sponsors across the university is evidence of the great interest in the topic. Five years ago, Harvard appointed me to the Al-Walid Professorship on Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society to promote the field of Islam in Africa. At the same time, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization, NELC, then chaired by Professor Ali Asani, offered me a courtesy appointment. In addition, NELC opened also an Islam in Africa track. This conference is a testimony to the strength of the field and Harvard's vision for it. When Matthew and I sent out the call for papers in March 2016, we expected to recruit a couple of dozen, a couple of dozen panelists at the most. When the deadline for submitting abstracts expired on June uh, 2016, we had received well over a hundred abstracts from 24 countries in virtually all disciplines of the social sciences and humanities, including religious studies, sociology, anthropology, philology, literature, and philosophy. Even after the deadline, we continue to receive inquiries from talented scholars expressing an interest in the conference. Unfortunately, we had to decline 80% of all applicants given given the limited number of panelists that an academic uh, conference like this can accommodate. As you may have noticed in the call for proposals, Matthew and I initially intended uh, 
to convene two conferences. The first one in 2017, this one was to focus on the pre-modern period. The second one in 2018 on the modern period. Given the interest generated by our call for papers and the strengths of the proposal, we hope to make this conference the first, not just of two, but the first in an ongoing series. To promote that field, we hope to partner with strong Islam in Africa programs in the country. This year's distinguished panelists come from 23 universities in the USA, Europe, Africa, and Asia. We thank you all for accepting our invitation. We are fully aware that you have no shortage of other important obligations and opportunities. Welcome to Harvard. <laughs> last, last but not least, I thank our PhD students, Kimberly Wortman, Farah Sharif, and Arman Siddiqui for volunteering to assist us with the conference logistics, and I also thank all uh, our colleagues and students for coming. My keynote speech is on the history and spread of Islamic scholarship in Africa. As you can see in the map, perhaps you could, uh, could you move to the next slide, please? Uh, an estimated 450 million to 500 million Muslims live in Africa, close to a third of uh, the global Muslim population. The overwhelming majority of them live in the, north, in the northern half of the continent above the equator, as you can see in the map. A fact rarely acknowledged is that Islam has a long history in sub-Saharan Africa. Having been introduced to Ethiopia before the beginning of the Muslim calendar, as you know, before the Muslim calendar, during the first uh, century of the Hijra, Islam made inroads in Egypt and North Africa, but also in what Arab authors called the Bilad Sudan or Sub-Saharan Africa. For example, in Kanemburno, in the region of Lake Chad, Islam was introduced in the year 46 of the Muslim calendar, when the Muslim general Waqba bin Nafi' and his troops penetrated the neighboring regions of Fazan and Kawar. As a result, Kanem was one of the first regions of Sudanic Africa to witness the development of Islamic learning. And as I will show later, for several centuries, it maintained uh, close intellectual relations with uh, North Africa. The spread of Islam increased the contact between the people of North Africa, the Sahara, and the Bilad Sudan. The infamous Oriental slave trade which uprooted millions of black people and transported them to the Arab world, shows that at times that, that encounter has been quite violent. But there is another side to the story of Afro-Arab relations. These people have also enjoyed profound and mutually beneficial intellectual and spiritual exchanges. Yet because of how the Western Academy has imagined and studied Africa, those intellectual exchanges have not been explored very thoroughly. Western universities, as we know, nowadays typically divide the academic study of Africa so that North Africa falls within the realm of Middle Eastern studies and the area south of the Sahara, which uh, some consider as to be Africa proper, is explored within the field of African studies. Such a division 
and its underlying assumptions overlook the fact that for centuries the Islamic faith and the Arabic language cemented relations between large populations in the Maghrib, the Sahara, and West Africa. With the spread of Arabic literacy, African scholars developed a rich tradition of debate over orthodoxy and meaning in Islam. The colonization of the African continent at the turn of the 20th century and the establishment of European colonial rule and Western types of schools did not in any fundamental way undermine this tradition of dialogue. Rather, it obscured this tradition by representing black Africa as essentially a continent of orality. As we will see over the course of our conference, and particularly at our first panel, which, like this keynote address, is titled History, Movement, and the Spread of Islamic Scholarship, the rise of such a tradition was not at all disconnected from centers of Islamic learnings elsewhere in the, in the Muslim world. African scholars participated in the development of virtually every field of Islamic sciences. By African scholars, of course, I mean scholars from the Maghrib and Egypt, but I also include those from the Bilad Sudan, which includes present-day Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Guinea, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, and the Republic of Sudan. In particular, a glance at the curriculum and the writings of scholars of the Bilad Sudan, including those who never traveled beyond their homeland, shows that they engaged with other Muslim authors, not only from the rest of the African continent, not only from the Bilad al-Maghrib, but also those from the South Asian subcontinent, Al-Andalus, and Southeast Asia. And this is evidence that they had long been integrated in a global network of intellectual exchange, as Zakir Wright quietly uh, argued. The spread of Islam paved the way for the development of Ajami, the use of the Arabic script to transcribe African languages. The word Ajami, as you know, derives from the Arabic root Ujma, which etymologically alludes to deficiency in speech and or pronunciation as opposed to eloquence, Fasaha. After the Islamic expansion, the term Ajam referred to a large number of people with whom the Arabs came in contact including the Berbers in Africa. Ajami would later acquire a less pejorative connotation when the Arabic script started to be used to transcribe languages of non-Arab Muslims. There is virtually no region that has been under Islamic influence that has not adopted the Arabic alphabet for transcribing languages of other Muslim people. Current research on the African manuscript heritage attests to the usage of the Arabic uh, script in 80 uh, languages in 80 languages in Africa, that is in all parts of Africa. The Arabic script was used as a means of scholarly composition, but also uh, for communication, for correspondence, etc. The recently published book, Muslims Beyond the Arab World, The Odyssey of the Ajami and the Muridia by Professor Falungom of Boston University demonstrates the resilience of the use of Ajami in West Africa. Non-Arab Africans started to transcribe their language with the Arabic script 
as early as the 12th century when they began to preach the religion among their kings. Yet it is likely that the scripts used at this point was quite limited. There is scholarly consensus that its more widespread use began in the 18th century, which coincided with the formation of a critical mass of Muslim ulama who not only were highly learned, but who also believed that knowledge was something to be shared with the masses. So they wrote in Arabic, but they also wrote in Ajami, and often in the form of poetry. The subject of Ajami is the theme of this conference panel entitled Vernacular in Text and Verse, scheduled for tomorrow morning and focus on Kis Kiswahili. And we are very fortunate to have leading experts of uh, Kiswahili here and other East African languages. And Kiswahili, as you know, is spoken by over 100 million uh, speakers, and it boasts some of the richest uh, Ajami literature. Over the course of the second millennium, Trans-Saharan movement led to the emergence of major centers such as Timbuktu, Walata, and Agadez. In these centers, Muslim scholars developed tradition of Islamic learning, which contributed to the development of scholarship in the Bilad Sudan, but also in the Bilad al-Maghrib, also in North Africa. These scholarly lineages which developed in the Sahara and south of the Sahara, they initiated a process of acculturation to Islamic law and literacy, which was accelerated particularly in the 18th and 19th century, uh, when a number of Islamic uh, revolutions were led by, by scholars and uh, 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 leading to the establishment of Islamic states. And in the 19th century, mid 19th century, half of West Africa was under Islamic rule, was ruled by scholar, the scholars who uh, waged those revolutions. Now let me address the global movement of uh, the Islamic scholarship of the, the, uh, from the Bilad Sudan. Literate Africans from the Bilad Sudan moved around extensively in North Africa, in the Middle East, to search for and spread Islamic knowledge. Even on the American continent, traces of the Islamic scholarship tradition in, of the Bilad Sudan have been documented. According to most recent estimates, the most recent estimates of the Dubois database in Atlanta, 12.5 uh, million Africans might have landed in America, in the Americas, as a result of 36,000 voyages. Some 20% of the slaves brought to the United States may have been Muslims, and many were able to uphold the five pillars of Islam while in bondage in the New World. And aspects of Muslim resistance to slavery in the United States and in the Americas in general include their leadership of many uh, slave revolts. Though this fact is rarely acknowledged, for almost 400 years, the, uh, <clears throat> all of the Muslims who lived in the Americas were West Africans, and this long before the arrival of the first Arab immigrants in the second half of the 19th century. And among these West Africans, quite a few were very learned. And this leads to the question of how the transmission of knowledge was organized in uh, pre-modern or pre-colonial Africa. 
As you know, a two-tier system of Islamic education which developed first in Mamluk, Egypt in the 9th century was adopted early in West Africa. It consisted of Quranic education at the lower level and the study of advanced Islamic sciences at the upper levels. There was not a single <coughs> village that did not have a Quranic school in Senegambia, for example. The subject of the last panel of our conference, such Quranic schools were responsible for disseminating literacy long before European colonial rule, a fact that reliable sources have established in the last centuries, among them the celebrated uh, globetrotter Ibn Battuta. The first Arab traveler to provide an eyewitness testimony of Quranic education of 14th century Bilal Sudan, uh, Ibn Battuta wrote in his memoirs that he was very impressed by the zeal with which Muslims in Mali learned the Quran. In the 18th century, Francis Moore, an employee of the Royal African Company of England, a chartered company established in England and active in Senegambia, likewise wrote in his travel narratives that Muslims in every kingdom and country of, on each side of the river Gambia spoke Arabic and that they were generally more learned in the Arabic than the people of Europe in Latin. The same point was made by French governor of Senegal, Baron Roger, who wrote that they were in Senegal more people who could read and write in Arabic in 1828 than French peasants who could read and write French. His compatriot, the French explorer René Caillé, the first to, you know, to have visited uh, Timbuktu and returned, you know, uh, he also confirmed that you know, all the people in Timbuktu were able to read the Quran and even know, know it, knew it by heart. So the prerequisite for knowledge acquisition in the Bilad Sudan was leaving the comfort of one's home and the affection of loved ones for the, rigor, for the rigors of Quranic education. Indeed, among the Hausa, one of the largest African ethnic groups to have embraced Islam, it is said that to acquire knowledge, one must leave one's home. Similar sayings exist in most West African languages. Muslim parents surrendered their children to a Quranic master who would take them away from home to teach them the Quran and shape their Muslim personality. We find an eloquent illustration of this in the celebrated autobiographic novel titled Ambiguous Adventure by Sheikh Amidukan, which tells of a young prince sent to a Quranic master to experience the rigors of Quranic education. It is well known that Quranic education involved memorizing the Holy Quran and learning to write in the Arabic script. But unlike the widely disseminated cliche that stereotyped this as rote memorization, such an education entailed far more than that and Rudolf Ware's seminal work, The Working Quran, as well as some, as well as some of our presentation, including one in Zanzibar, show that in, it entailed a process of personal transformation 
based on the living example of the Quranic teacher. The imitation of the teacher, teacher's gestures and comportment was, much, was as much part of the educative process as the text one was required to read. Now, in this epistemological universe, knowledge and action are intertwined. The search for knowledge was linked with the struggle for self-improvement. To that end, unlike in modern school, unlike in modern schools, there was no fixed time frame for studying a particular subject, for the ultimate goal of learning was to become a good Muslim no matter how long that took. Quranic studies have undergone a dramatic transformation. But such an education still remains central to being Muslim. One such transformative shift occurred through the rise of so-called integrated curriculum schools in which the study of the Quran and other uh, Islamic sciences is offered alongside training in marketable skills. New associations for the study of the Quran have mushroomed in Africa where modern technology is used to make the study of the Quran more accessible to grassroots people. The number of websites, apps, and software that offer a convivial study experience of Salmodi, of Tajweed, is overwhelming, as are the increasingly popular competitions for the recitation of the Holy Quran. The sixth panel of this conference entitled Quranic education will address the resilience of Quranic learning and recitation in Muslim Africa from Egypt to Niger to Senegal and Mauritania. Beyond recitation of the Quran, the second tier of education consisted of various subjects, the most important being the most important being Quranic exegesis, Maliki jurisprudence, esoteric knowledge, grammar, Arabic literature, and even philosophy as Oludamini Ogunayike, one of our panelists, will show in his paper on philosophical Sufism in the early Sokoto Caliphate tomorrow. In major centers such as Timbuktu, students found instructors who could teach most of these subjects. But most students did not live in such centers. For, for them, peripatetic scholarship was the rule. The study of advanced text required most students to travel tens hundreds or even thousands of miles to the village of a sheikh with expertise on a specific subject or book. Travel and particularly the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to the Holy Lands was part and parcel of this search for knowledge. And this leads me to a discussion of the pilgrimage tradition in Africa and with particular reference to West Africa. The pilgrimage tradition has a thousand-year history in black Africa. More than any other factor, it was pilgrimage that integrated the Islamic scholarship of West Africa into the larger Islamic intellectual tapestry in the second millennium. Nowadays, two million Muslims fly to Mecca from all over the world to perform the rituals of pilgrimage in a few days and return home. By contrast, in past centuries, it took many years to reach the Holy Lands, not only because of the difficulties of travel, but because the purpose of the pilgrimage was not only a means of accomplishing rituals in the Holy Land, but also a means of education. Many student pilgrims stayed for a while in centers of learning along the way 
and also in the Holy Land themselves to study and to receive intellectual credentials as scholars. Cairo had become a major center of learning, of Islamic learning when the pilgrimage tradition started in West Africa. It was a resting point for all pilgrimage routes. And there is evidence that Muslim students from Sub-Saharan Africa have been studying in Cairo since the mid 13th century. One such piece of evidence is the Madras Ibn Rashid, a school established in Cairo in 1258 for the benefit of Borno students through an endowment given by Borno merchant pilgrims to the Qadi Alam Din Ibn Rashid, after whom the school was named. This is most probably the first West African foundation in the Middle East, and it received a, Borno, a student from Borno until the 18th century. Now, another piece of evidence for sub-Saharan uh, Muslim studying in Cairo is a residence for Borno students in Al-Azhar called Riwaq al-Barnawi. It was named Riwaq al-Barnawi and established uh, in 1248 uh, uh, also, and that was donated by my uh, Dunoma Dabir Lami, who was the then king of Borno. One reason for the long historical connections between West Africa and the rest of the Islamic world is that West Africa was a global supplier of gold. From the 7th to the 15th century, an estimated two-thirds of gold circulating in global markets came from West Africa. By the 10th century, West African gold was being minted into coins in the cities of the Maghrib before circulating widely in the rest of Africa and beyond. The gold was a main attraction for the Arabs to the Bilad Sudan, and the huge quantities of gold exported by the uh, Western Bilad Sudan attracted the interest of Arab and Western geographers. Between the 9th and the 17th century, no fewer than 75 trade routes were produced by Arab geographers. They gave detailed information of the exact position of trading centers and oasis, and the length of caravan routes and days of traveling time between centers. In the year 1332, as you know, Mali's emperor Mansa Musa stayed three days in Egypt on his way to Mecca. He distributed so much gold that his passage was recorded in great detail by Egyptians and even European uh, uh, cartographers. Indeed, a picture of Mansa Musa is featured in the Catalan Atlas of 1375 drawn by Abraham Crest, one of the first maps to provide reliable information about Africa. On his return to West Africa from the pilgrimage, Mansa Musa brought with him many books and even scholars. Over the course of many centuries, West African pilgrims studied in Egypt with major intellectual luminaries, the writings of Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, who died in 1505, one of the famous Egyptian ulama of the 16th century, has, uh, <clears throat> have been uh, taught for centuries in West Africa thanks to West African students who studied with him on their pilgrimage routes to the Holy Land. And I think... Uh, for example, of the Tafsir al-Jalali in the most popular Tafsir. The intellectual contacts that the trade routes generated not only took Sudanese scholars to Egypt to study with Egyptian sheikhs, it also encouraged Egyptians and other Arab ulama to visit the West and Central Bilad Sudan, where they served 
as advisors to the black African kings and were generously rewarded and some settled there permanently. West African scholars were not always junior partners in this intellectual conversation. Some of their teachings had a great impact in the Arab world. Ahmed Baba at Timbukti is an example of such scholars. Like several other prominent scholars of Timbuktu, Ahmed Baba was arrested and deported to Morocco, and his 1600-volume library in Timbuktu confiscated in the aftermath of the 16th century Saadian conquest of Songhai. Ahmed Baba resided in Morocco between May 1594 and February 1608. He was freed after two years of house arrest, but was required to remain in residence in Marrakesh. Invited to teach in a major Marrakesh college, the Congregational Mosque of the Sharif, now called the Congre Congregational Mosque of the Mawasin, he taught and composed uh, several pieces of work there, and some of his students became very influential and helped uh, consolidate his reputation. They include Ibn uh, Abi Nu'aym al-Ghassani, died in 1624, but also Ahmed bin Muhammad al-Makkari al-Tilimsani, who is the author of you know, the breath of perfume from the branch of Green Andalusia, one of most important reference of the intellectual history of Muslim Spain. A leading authority in Maliki jurisprudence, Ahmed Baba authored a much cited bibliographical dictionary of uh, 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 Maliki jurists, the Nailul Ibtihaj. Another scholar who made a great impact in Egypt is Muhammad al-Kashinawi, who was trained in, in his native Katsina in northern Nigeria and left his country uh, for the Holy Land, performed the Hajj, and on his return settled in Cairo, where, Cairo, where he lived and died in 1741. And our colleague uh, uh, Dalia Gubara will show in her paper tomorrow that Kashinawi's work displays extensive, extensive knowledge of scientific and cosmological theories that had prevailed over the centuries in all of the Islamic, Christian, and Jewish tradition, as well as their precursors in uh, classical antiquity, and I was citing uh, Dalia Gubar. Other scholars from the Bilad Sudan, whose teachings and writings were renowned in the Middle East, include the ulama of Mauritania and the Western Sahara, known as the Shanaqita. In recent years, two encyclopedic works have comprehensively mapped the intellectual production of the Bilad Shingit. The first is Yahya Uldbala's 12-volume compilation of 6,000 fatwa and nawazil issued by scholars across the Sahara over the past 400 years. Albara shows not only uh, the, uh, the Shanaqita's decisive contribution to the development of legal scholarship, but also to the trans-Saharan trade that was regulated by Islamic law and for which their expertise were, was much uh, sought after. The second such encyclopedic work, published in two volumes in 2015, uh, you know, is the Arabic literature in Mauritania and Western Sahara of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, in, and it exceeds 10,000 titles authored by over 1,800 authors, and the were much sought after as teachers, you know, in West Africa. Centers of learning such as Timbuktu, Walata, Tishid, and Shingir in the Western Sahara attracted students, but the Shanaqita also traveled to establish uh, schools and to teach both in other parts of West Africa 
and beyond West Africa. As we will hear in the first panel session of the conference on the history, movement, and spread of Islamic scholarship, large contingent of Shanaqita joined the caravans traveling to Mecca from the 18th century. Quite a few of them acquired a solid reputation as teachers in Amman, in Cairo, in Baghdad, in Jeddah, in Mecca, in Medina, where they were appointed as teachers, judges, and advisors, and where, as Khalid will uh, show uh, tomorrow, they promoted their own particular methods of learning. In the process, they helped to build strong intellectual bridges between West Africa and the Middle East. The Shanaqita were also very active in disseminating the Sufi Turuq, the Sufi brotherhoods in Africa. And this leads me to another important vector of Islamic knowledge transmission in Africa, the Sufi brotherhoods. The contribution of the Sufi brotherhood, especially of the Tijaniya and the Qadiriya to Islamic scholarship in Africa is second to none. Sufi established Quranic schools, mosques, and zawiyah for the purpose of teaching one of the most widely disseminated such brotherhood in the modern world is the Tijaniya. No doubt that its following run in the tens of millions, and of whom at least 90% are Sub-Saharan African. But it's not just in numbers that uh, Sub-Saharan Africans dominate the Tijaniya. It's also in intellectual production. Some of the major doctrinal elaboration of the Tijaniya was the work of West African Tijani. To cite just a few, Al-Haj Umar Tal, uh, his work, Kitab Rimah al-Hizb al-Rahim ala al-Nuhur Hizb al-Rajim, Spears of the Party of the Merciful Throne at the Throats of the Party of the, uh, of the Accursed, is the, most the second most important book clarifying the doctrines of the Tijaniya and is published in the margins of the Jawahir al-Ma'ani, the Jewels of Meanings of Ali Harazim, which is uh, arguably the first, the first most important book. The next uh, uh, important books include the Kashif al-Ilbas and Fayyidat al-Khatm al-Abi Abbas in English, the removal of confusion, which is the magnum opus of Ibrahim Yas, who, according to his biographer, Rudiger Sisman, and as uh, Professor Graham also said, is one of the most influential Sufi authors of the 20th century. In Nigeria, Ibrahim Saleh Husseini, the author of over 100 books, wrote two of them in defense of the uh, Tijaniya. The first is At-Takfir, Akhtar al-Bid'a, Tuhaddidus Salam, Wal-Wahda Bayna al-Muslimin fi Nigeria, proclaiming other Muslims infidels is the worst innovation threatening peace and unity among Muslims. And the second book, Al-Mughir ala Shubuhat Ahli Ahwa wa Akadib al-Munkir ala Kitab At-Takfir, The Assailants Against the Specious Arguments of Dissenters and Lies of Detractors of detractors of the takfir. A detailed analysis of all these treaties is beyond the scope of this keynote speech, of course, but these few examples show quite clearly that sub-Saharan -sub African Islam is far from a minor thread in the larger Islamic tapestry. The turn of the 20th century witnessed the expansion of European colonial powers. The Islamic states created in West Africa in the 18th and 19th century, centuries all succumbed to European uh, military might.
As Omar al-Nakar notes in his study of the pilgrimage tradition in West Africa, they were Muslims who left for the Holy Lands because they did not want to live in a land governed by infidels. Shafi Ahmed has documented that these African Muslims who settled in Saudi Arabia in the early 20th century were actively involved in proselytizing and thus, I cite uh, Shafi, helped the regime of King Ibn Saud at its beginning in the field of teaching and spreading the Salafi Wahhabi Islam, both inside and outside uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And this countered the dominant narrative that you know, it spread from uh, the Holy Land to, uh, to, to the African. And uh, Africans such as Abdurrahman al-Rifiqi from Mali, but also Sheikh Jami from Ethiopia, which is the subject of uh, uh, Shafi's paper tomorrow, and others were among uh, you know, prominent teachers in, uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So this again uh, ref uh, refutes, as I said, the dominant narrative that Wahhabism only spread globally from Africa, from Saudi Arabia to the periphery of the Islamic world, thanks to the Saudi wealth. It was not just across the Sahara that scholarly connections were maintained between Arabs and the Bilad Sudan. Transoceanic connections between East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula have an extensive extensive history long before Islam, Aksum's sphere of influence extended to Southern Arabia. Ethiopians were found in Mecca during the lifetime of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. When the first Muslim communities were oppressed in Mecca, the Prophet Muhammad sent a group of 80 disciples to Ethiopia where they were welcomed by the Egypt, Egypt, Ethiopian niggers. This caused a favorable view of Ethiopians as shown by the literary genre known as Fadail Habash. Transoceanic scholarly uh, movements and networks connected the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa. And our third conference panel entitled Contemporary Expressions of Islamic Scholarship show that scholarly, scholarly networks connected Muslims of East Africa from Brava all the way to Mozambique to the Hadramaut and the Hijaz in the Arabian Peninsula. Now I want to address colonial rule and the restructuring of knowledge transmission in Africa. The issue of political legitimacy was much debated during the 19th century. The Ottoman Empire, one of the most powerful polities in Islamic history, was declining and the rising European powers were occupying most of the Muslim world. Starting with Algeria, which fell uh, under French domination in 1830, several other Muslim countries of Africa were gradually colonized by the European. But it was chiefly at the turn of the 20th century that the scramble for Africa took place. Before the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885 convened to divide Africa, only 10% of the African continent was occupied by Europeans. Some 20 years later, Imperial Europe had colonized the entire African continent with the exception of Ethiopia and Morocco. Among the questions which, uh, with which Muslim jurists grappled most was whether Muslims should live under non-Muslim rule. There were two schools of thought among African Muslims about how to deal with the colonial conquest. Predominant in the late 19th century, the partisans of the first school of thought were of the opinion that Muslims should, under no circumstances, live under non-Muslim rule. Leaders 
for example, uh, such as Mal Ainain, Umartal, Mamadulamin Drame, Fodekaba Dumbuya, Mabajahu, and many others attempted to resist the colonial conquest. They were all ultimately defeated or fled to the Holy Lands. As Europe established its imperial domination and quashed all attempts at resistance in the early 20th century, a second school of thought began to emerge, to emerge which favored accommodation to non-Muslim rule. Many Muslim scholars exerted considerable intellectual efforts to think the notion of the Darid Islam and how to defend it. And by the early 20th century, the dominant school of thought understood the defense of the Darid Islam as the defense of the practice of Islam and accepted the idea that Muslims might live under non-Muslim rule. This shift in the position of Muslim cleric paved the way for the emergence of a mutually beneficial cooperation between Muslim notables and the colonial state in most of West Africa. European colonial rule engineered profound transformations. The colonial state encouraged its subject to cultivate cash crops needed to support European industrialization. It took control of the extraction of mineral resources. Exportation of primary commodities required building transport infrastructures. Tarred roads and railways soon linked the main centers of agriculture and mining to the coast in order to facilitate the movement of people and goods. European technologies and science were used to engineer other societal transformations. The colonial state introduced a new postal service, new health infrastructures, and new educational opportunities uh, in colonial schools. However, colonial Africa was not entirely the making of Europeans. Muslims in Africa seized the opportunities offered by European colonial rule to pursue their own agenda of Islamization. And they indeed succeeded. They won more converts to the Islamic faith in West Africa during the six decades of colonial rule, 1900-1960, than in the nine preceding centuries of Islamization combined. In the field of education, the response of Muslims to the colonial reorganizations of schooling had been of three kinds. A first group opted to send their children to public schools that offered instruction in European languages, where they received an education certified by the award of a degree. Among these parents, the majority arranged for their children to receive some parallel Islamic education. They either sent them to the madrasa to study a few hours over the weekends, or hired a private tutor to initiate them in Quranic studies at home. A second group adopted a learning method inspired largely by Western pedagogy while using either exclusively Arabic or both Arabic and the respective colonial language as the media of instruction. This trend led to the rise of hybrid schools called by various names Islamia in northern Nigeria, Franco-Arabic schools in Senegal, Medersa in Mali and Mauritania. A third group of Muslims opted to preserve the traditional Arabic-based educational system. This is particularly the case in clerical enclaves that resisted, uh, Islamic, uh, uh, resisted westernization. The different types of schools coincided with different needs, however. Therefore, they have maintained complex patterns of interactions, and none of these three types of schoolings had completely precluded any or 
any or all of the others. But colonial rule considerably limited the connections between Muslim in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, especially because the European colonial state feared pan-Islamism. Now, after colonialism, after independence, relations between Muslims in Africa regained considerable momentum. Not only did Arab countries offer tens of thousands of scholarships to sub-Saharan African Muslims to be educated in Arabic language, they were also instrumental in establishing modern Islamic colleges and universities in sub-Saharan Africa itself. In this way, since the independence of West Africa in the early 1960s, thousands of Muslim students from the south of the Sahara have pursued higher education in Arab countries. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, uh, most attended colleges in North Africa and Egypt, after the oil boom of the late 70s, large contingents be began to attend institutions of high learning in the uh, oil-rich Gulf countries, the majority of them in Saudi Arabia. Of all Arab countries, however, it was Egypt that received the largest number of Muslims from Africa and Asia. In the early 1960s, as you know, the old college mosque of Al-Azhar underwent, underwent radical administrative and pedagogical reform under the uh, ages of Egyptian President uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser. To a large extent, these reforms reflected Nasser's ambition to provide intellectual and political leadership in the emerging uh, third world. At the 1955 Afro-Asian Conference of Bandung, which was a turning point in the rise of the spirit of non-alignment, President Nasser emerged as a leading figure of third worldism. His success at nationalizing the, canal, uh, the Suez Canal a year later uh, catapulted the Egyptian president to the pantheon of third world nationalism. He was deeply committed to anti-colonialism, non-alignment, and the promotion of South-South solidarity. An important component of this solidarity was to promote Arabo-Islamic culture and strengthen ties with Muslims, 90% of whom lived in Africa and Asia. Before the uh, reforms initiated by Nasser al-Azhar was largely supported by religious endowment. But after the reform, uh, the Egyptian state became the sole purveyor of funds and financial support. In addition to restructuring how learning uh, occurred and the method of knowledge transmission of tra traditional topics such as Arabic and Islamic studies, new departments opened in Al-Azhar offering degrees in fields such as agronomy, business, medicine, and engineering. The ulama of Al-Azhar became uh, civil uh, servants. Henceforth, the mode of designation of the great imam of the mosque also changed. Henceforth, he was to be appointed by the Egyptian president. On the administrative side, the reforms led to the creation of new bodies that implemented President Nasser's cultural policy abroad. So between the reform of Al-Azhar in 1961 and 2005, a total of 22,571 international students received a master's degree from Al-Azhar University. Of these, 16,827, or almost 75%, came from Asia, and 5,447, or just over 24%, came uh, from different African countries. 
More than half of the African students came from only three countries, Republic of Sudan, followed by Senegal and Nigeria. If we include students who received only undergraduate education or dropped, or, or dropped out or attended other uh, Egyptian institutions of higher learning, such as the University of Cairo or or Ayn Shams University, the number of Africans who have studied in Egypt is even higher. After the death of President Nasser, Al-Azhar continued to be an instrument of Egypt's cultural policy, welcoming thousands of students from the Muslim world and supplying technical assistance, especially teachers, to most Arabic schools in sub-Saharan Africa. The overwhelming majority of African students majored in Arabic and Islamic studies and uh, out of uh, 6,605 non-Egyptian African students who graduated from Al-Azhar between 1961 and 2005, 4,000 or more than 4,000 majored in Islamic studies. A few students were admitted to Egyptian high schools, and after completing a high school education, this minority was then qualified to study scientific subjects at Al-Azhar or other uh, uh, Egyptian universities. Other Arab countries that offered uh, scholarship to students from Africa include, uh, from West Africa include Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, the Sudan, and the number of Africans studying in Arab countries has kept increasing, and this is an important theme that we hope to address in, 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 in our next conference. Now to conclude, because it's time, our conference will address the use of text, the transmission of knowledge, and technologies of the self associated with the acquisition of knowledge. Our distinguished panelists will highlight what Islamic scholarship has meant and continues, and continues to mean in Muslim Africa, including the history, movement, and spread of Islamic scholarship, a topic which I have introduced in my keynote speech and which tomorrow's panel will further explore. Court colonialism and Islamic law in Africa is the subject of the second panel tomorrow. Author, text, and Islamic scholarship, the third panel. Contemporary expression of Islamic scholarship in Af uh, the, the, the fourth panel. Vernacular in text and verse, the fifth panel. And Quranic education, the uh, sixth and last panels. All contributors have agreed to present fresh ongoing research they all submitted their papers long before the conference. October 15 was the deadline to uh, submit the papers, and most uh, have done that. And we have uh, received the papers, distributed them long in advance, uh, so that panelists could read it. We are, very, we are therefore very hopeful that this conference uh, 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 will further our knowledge of uh, Islamic scholarship in Africa. I look forward to our conversation and welcome you to Harvard. Thank you very much.